All right, well, good evening, everyone. Um, as you know, we've been in the Idols series. And uh, real quickly, just to kind of recap, just so that we are all on the same page, uh, in case we've forgotten or in case people are dropping in, we have identified idols as anything, like it says there, more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, or anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. So we've focused on the aspect that, you know, in the Old Testament or, or throughout Scripture, you had people who would build actual things. And that still goes around, actually, that happens in quite a few places still in the world today, that people will actually build idols of metal and gold and things of that nature. But we also understand that idols are a much broader thing than just simply things you can build. Uh, they can actually be anything. And we've also used the definition from Tim Keller saying, you know, idols are when you make a good thing ultimate. So like last week, we talked about love is one of the central things in the Christian life, right? Um, so love is a very good thing. It's even one thing that is eternally lasting. And yet, in our fallen nature, we can actually, sub, you know, we can actually twist love to a place where we put other things or other people before God and we've missed the very essence of love. So tonight, though, we're going to turn to success. And similar to last week, I want to give us a starting point on why this success is, again, one of those things that's good, uh, something I think we should actually desire for our lives to some level, uh, and yet it can very easily become an idol. And I actually think it's one that's very specific to American and Western culture that becomes a huge problem. So here's a starting point for success. We know that God has told us that we are stewards, right? It's throughout scripture that God has given us everything. We are stewards who are specifically entrusted with God-given talents, abilities, money, and other resources. And what are we supposed to do with them? We're actually supposed to multiply them, right? And in the parable, Matthew 25, the third servant gets reprimanded for hiding it. So he didn't lose it, but he hid it. He didn't do anything to invest it or to multiply it, right? And so that, I guess you could say, it's an implication of success, right? You actually take the talents and you use them, and in that way we would be successful, right? So it's a little indirect, but we can see like why, where we get the idea of, hey, I actually desire to be successful in the kingdom, right? Paul, again, specifically commands people not to steal, but instead to work. So what? So that they can share with those in need, right? So again, it seems that we are supposed to use things like material wealth and others to actually help others in need. And in that sense, we could be successful, okay? So, however, our culture, though, um, says a lot of other things about success. And I just want to even list up, where are some common areas where we look to be successful people? And I think the first one that really comes to mind is school. And, you know, many of us are either currently students or, or just coming out of being students within a couple years. And I think some of it gets cultivated at a very young age that, you know, good American or, or uh, you know, healthy children are people who are going to be successful in the world. And so education is something you should do. Now, I'm not bashing on education. I mean, it's, it's something that I believe as a Christian is extremely important in, in the health of a person and uh, in the development of societies. We know that education is a very good thing. So hear me that success is not a bad thing in and of itself. We're also told economic success. And this one, I think we start to get even more Western that, you know, um, if you succeed economically, you are now a quote unquote successful person. If you have lots of money, you have achieved success. 
There are many people who seek after political success. They're looking for power, or, or not even just power, maybe not even the negative aspects, but trying to govern well, right? I mean, government organization is a good thing, um, organizing people and making it efficient. So people do that in political. Career is another place for success. And the reason I distinguish career from economic is some people desire success in career regardless of how much money that brings in. Right? So some people are still saying, this is my career. I want to be the best uh, social worker. Right? And, and many social workers are not bringing in lots of money. So they may not have economic success, but they would say, you know, I want to dive into my career. I want to be the best uh, social worker possible. Okay? So I distinguish between those. And then just like a lot of them, ministry efforts. Right? Another area of success. And John has mentioned in the past, he's read uh, some pastoral blogs of people in amazing depression because they had the desire to, you know, have a church with 4,000 people attending it and they lead a church of 24 people and they're about to take their lives over it or, or they just feel immense guilt and shame before God because they're not leading a quote-unquote successful ministry. So it seeps into a lot of aspects in life. And I wanted to read you a quote. Um, this is a great, out of a chapter of one of the books that we've been reading, um, just real briefly, um, because it's helpful if you don't already believe this, the amount of idolatry of success in our country and how we are ingrained to think in terms of success. So here's what it says. It says, and he quotes um, Marshall Allen, sorry, so he's a journalist in America of the American dream, okay, so Marshall Allen. So it says, it's so ingrained in our cultural DNA that we're easily dissatisfied if we don't achieve riches, power, or even our more humble goals of material security. Plus, we have no finish line when we pursue the American dream. There's no clear marker that tells us enough is enough. You're successful and secure now. Be content. So we run like hamsters on a wire wheel always striving for worldly progress, sometimes making it, but never feeling like we've achieved enough. We become worriers, obsessing about our academic standing, our salary, our investment portfolio, as if any setback would destroy our dreams and expectations. We fail to appreciate God's provision or experience the peace that surpasses all understanding that the Bible promises us, because we're gluttons who always want more. In times like these, the American dream is detrimental to our faith because we've made it, often subconsciously, into an idol. It's something we're pursuing instead of God. Does that relate with anyone? Does anyone have pushbacks again? Or do you feel like that is a fair assessment of American culture? Yeah. I think it's a fair assessment. I, I think for me personally, it's um, very challenging because I'm very passionate about my profession. But um, it's very easy to get um, for the line to get blurred, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to do, you know, I want to do my job, I want to do it well, and I want to do it for God, but I have to be very careful about um, my pursuit of continuing my education or, you know, just continuing to move up the ladder and always make sure to step back and assess, okay, am, am I doing this, is this the appropriate way that I'm going about, am I, am I staying focused on Christ? And, and so I think that can be very challenging for uh, the church, for me personally. Yeah, and 
me as well, and I like how she's. I'm passionate about. I'm. I'm very passionate. I'm one of the people who could have issues with success in ministry, right? I mean, that's something I desire, and there's part of it that's good. And like you said, that that's the tension that we keep running into. Yeah, Heather. I just want to push back on like God doesn't want us walking through life walking on eggshells. This right? Am I praising God in this? Am I going too far here? Like I feel like that's not enjoying it. Like the the point of part of the point of us being here is enjoying Earth because through it, like, we praise God for giving us that. And so I think that there needs to be an element of saying, like, if you're pursuing God's will, you know, and you have a good relationship with Him, like, I feel like it starts with a good relationship with Him. Because if you have a good relationship with Him, you don't have to question so much whether you're doing His will or not because you have that sense inside of you from building that relationship with Him that you are going in the right direction. Yeah, I would say I mostly agree with you. I think the difficulty is... I think we can confuse um, the idea that, again, if we starting point, God, we are stewards, and we're supposed to be doing God's will in this world. Uh, that, that's a good thing, and we should be doing it well. I mean, the idea of success is not just, hey, pittering around. It's actually saying, yeah, if I'm going to use my talents and abilities wisely, I want to do that well, not just, hey, whatever happens, happens, no big deal. So I agree in that sense that we should enjoy, but I've experienced, and I think many others have probably experienced where, we get so excited, we can tweak the, the very things we're supposed to be doing, we make them ultimate, right? And we begin to say, okay, I know God wants me to do this, so okay, I'm going to do it better than anybody else, right? It's a pursuit of being the best. Um, we'll get into, as we've done in the past weeks, we'll ask some questions that, that maybe will help us figure out, okay, so are we, what side of the line are we on? Um, are, are we in a place where success is now defining our identity? I think just to go back to the quote from talking about American culture, I think there actually is a little bit of a finish line. Retirement is out there. I think the goal is to get to retirement, and then from there, if you've done enough and you can survive, you've reached the finish line. You don't necessarily have to achieve it where you've achieved it. And so I think oftentimes that gets defined as success. Yeah, I, again, I in part agree. I think you're right. Many people would, would define it by retirement. But you also see people who, I mean, multi-multi-millionaires or even billionaires, they, they could have retired, <laughs> you know, decades ago. And it's not about retirement. It, it's, it, it becomes a self-consuming endeavor um, to do who knows what. I mean, some people are trying to change the world. Some people are just accumulating more stuff. I mean, it, there's all kinds of motives based on the person and situation. So I think, yeah, a lot of people, I mean, maybe your typical person would be happy with, I want a good retirement, I want security, I want to be able to provide for my children or even my grandchildren or something to that extent. But I do resonate with the idea of, you know, enough is enough, you're successful and secure, now be content. That's not, I would say that's not a cultural message as a whole. There are certainly people who live that way. But as a whole, it does become a danger of, of do we have enough? Um, even a couple months ago, you know, even Carissa and I in our dialogue on when we talked about money, it's one of those things where sometimes you have to recognize, like even if, if we're not meeting a cer certain financial goal or a projection or something like that, it's also reminding us like, hey, we have food and shelter every day. Like we are okay. This idea, like we have to almost remind ourselves we're actually content. Like God is providing for us daily. And to me, the, the, the teachable moment is just simply the fact that we have to coach ourselves in that says something that, that there are these voices in our heads that say, it's not enough. You're, you're not doing enough. And we have to remind ourselves, no, actually, God is totally providing for us. 
we are okay. And, and yes, we'd like to be further or whatever, but the fact that we have those voices, it says something. It says something about our culture. Any other thoughts? Yeah. I think the fact that, the, that our churches have such a hard time addressing this shows how deep this idol runs. So in one way, you could say that people who attend churches still worship success, right? And the church almost seems ineffectual at trying to turn them from that. That's at one end of the spectrum. And at the same time, a lot of churches just celebrate their success so much, they're actually bad role models, right? They talk so much about this leadership culture, this growth culture, this success culture, that even if you were going to go to those churches, you probably no one would be there talking you out of it. They'd actually be probably encouraging you. It's a kind of an odd thing that just shows how deep this runs in our society that we've adopted it, even in the church. I think that becomes problematic when you try and read a lot of the gospel where there's constantly the poor are lauded as the people that God loves. Those are God's people, are the poor. And there's a lot of stuff, especially in Luke, about like, woe to you who are rich because you know what's coming for you. So I think our culture has a really hard time hearing that, whereas we get this constantly from a very young age, like awards in first and second grade for being the best at things and the best in school and going in through athletics and there's just awards for being the best all the way through and then that continues on and it's just constant, a constant inundation of this message of success and I think that becomes a real problem with then you're presented with the gospel which says sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Give everything you have and daily take up your cross. Like how does a culture of success read that and I've heard some really funny things done with that in terms of like oh well Jesus didn't actually mean give up everything and follow me and I'm like how are you so sure about that because I'm not sure about that I think that's really hard yeah I think that's great I like how you pointed out just personal achievement and it kind of takes us into our next step which is Tim Keller believes we have a society and I totally agree is where dignity is valued over honor. So let me just explain it real in a very brief way so that you can see that. Honor is achieved when one fulfills a role in society regardless of that wall, role. So a husband, a wife, a teacher, a mom, a ruler, a doctor. So both high and low, person to person. If you are fulfilling your role in society, you achieve honor. Okay. I'm not trying to glorify honor shame societies. There are positives and negatives to both. There are ways where the kingdom of God is, is there and where it's not or it's lacking. Um, but here how you see, I could be a humble, uh, poor person, absolutely poor, but I am a good mother. I take care of my children. I love them. I take care of them. I'm fulfilling a role in society and I would receive honor for that. Okay? However, we live in a highly individualistic Western society where dignity, and it is defined by the right of every individual to develop his or her own identity or self, free from any socially assigned role or category. So instead of taking those roles, I choose it. So if I want to be a good mom, or if I want to be a good uh, teacher, that's fine because I've identified it. But it puts the, the, the responsibility in my hands to say this will give me dignity. But like it's, I said underneath, it puts pressure on the individual to accomplish. Because the only way that's defined is by you saying, okay, this is going to be my place of dignity or this is how I'm going to associate my worth. I'm going to look for success in this area. That's why I listed economic or political or even family could go up there or ministry efforts. So we all have our own categories, but we're all doing this. This is how I'm going to make my mark. This is how I'm going to find. And if I make my mark, then I have worth and value. You see how that, that builds into a society that will define us by success 
and it's usually outward achievement. So I like how she even talks about awards or trophies. Um, you know, and some of it's harmless. Like, you know, you see like the best dad in the world uh, bumper sticker or things like that. You know, I think that's fine. I'm not trying to hate on, on that, but just that the thinking is so ingrained that I am the best at this or that, you know? And that's where we see this idol that's, you know, kind of subconsciously there in a lot of avenues of life. And part of the reason I wanted to speak on this is this is some of my own personal struggle, and this has been in the past where I identified, you know, growing up, it was baseball. This is how I'm going to say, if I'm successful in this, I have value and worth. Um, I'm important. I have meaning, those sort of things. And so we all choose our own categories, and that was mine. And thankfully, God moved me away from that. Okay? Now, how do we recover this? Because it's ingrained everywhere. This is where we need to hear some scripture. And how does Jesus, you know, Ray had also kind of hinted at, how does Jesus define success? What, what is success in the kingdom? Mark 10, 35 through 45. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want to ask you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So you have a very typical scene. John and James following Jesus, they know, they really believe he's the Messiah. They know he has intentions of power. They think it's going to be a political power. They think it's going to be a worldly power. And so what do they do? They grab at worldly success. Let me sit at the right. Let me sit at the left. Let me govern over people. Let me have control and power, right? Let me be near to you. Uh, this is the top-down way of thinking that we're all taught. And Jesus has to remind them. So the other people actually, the other disciples, get angry that they've made this ask. Like, how dare they do that? And Jesus then corrects them. So he says, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so many of you have heard this passage, hopefully being Christians for a while. This needs to be central in our hearts. Not just something that we know, but something that we actually believe, that Jesus identifies those who go last are first. There is a great reversal in the very universe, in the kingdom of God, that says, no, the, the people who are served, the people who give their life away. And I'm going to model that for you. I didn't come here to receive from you. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Philippians says it like this. Paul commends the church. Your attitude should be the same as that of, G of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Part of understanding what true success is, is seeing what Jesus did. It is, should be mind-boggling to us to even imagine because we can't even fully know what it would be like to experience full glory in communion with the Father, Son, Spirit, and then to relinquish that, to, to step away from it and into human existence. That's obviously is a concept that is beyond us. But even thinking if we have a great awe and understanding of God, uh, God becoming human, we should see an amazing ability to give away, to serve others and give life away. So what we've done in the past, and we'll do again. So this is where I'd love to hear from you if, if any of these things resonate with you. Um, if these are challenging, uh, if they're not, fine. Maybe people don't struggle with success in this room, but I would beg to think that some of us probably do. So here's some things to examine your heart. Do you frequently have a problem resting or doing nothing, quote-unquote? Is that difficult? Is it a struggle to keep a meaningful Sabbath, a uh, form of a Sabbath because you constantly have too much work? And even though uh, people are going to understand Sabbath differently and how to live that out, um, I think it's a really important spiritual practice that reminds us that we can make space away from work. Um, that not only can we, we should, because God modeled that for us. And so if the constant threat is, no, I can't get a decent period, whether it's a full 24 hours or a large, something close to that, uh, that should make it maybe at least make us question, wow, am I doing too many things? Do I value doing so much so that I can't step away from things? Yeah, Jordan. Um, wouldn't this be uh, easier to define as just pride and you're putting yourself over God rather than success? Because when you're talking about the success having issues, aren't you talking like the problem isn't isn't doing good works? It's saying I did those things mm -hmm. and saying it's me. I I am getting success. I'm building this wealth. I'm building this power, rather than just the power being built up and the wealth being built up. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. Uh, there's a slide ahead like we've been doing where success may be a deep idol. It may also be a surface idol that has deeper things in it. I would say, yeah, pride may be one of them. That may not be for everyone. Um, but yeah, I would, I would say there's probably a tendency. There is a sense of like, I accomplished this. And so there could be some pride. Um, that may be one of the deeper idols with success. There, there are some others because, again, if I, let's say if you take, um, if you take the idol, uh, if your success is defined economically, right? Some people are like, my goal is to make lots and lots of money. Your deeper idol could be greed, right? It might be more than the pride. I mean, maybe, yeah, you get this pride from building your own business. But maybe the bottom line for you, I just want lots of money. I don't care how. I'm even willing to cheat for it because the real issue is greed, right? So, but pride is a good example. I mean, pride is probably an issue. Another one. Are you shocked or overwhelmed when things don't go your way or a tragedy occurs? Now, this may sound like a strange question, uh, but one of the reasons I bring it up is success brings a sense of false security. And Tim Keller makes this argument. So the reason why if, if you, we are constantly shocked or overwhelmed by a tragedy, that's because if we're in the middle upper class or we're more affluent, we begin to think because of our wealth, because of our security, when someone comes and robs my house, 
we are shocked and over how could somebody do such a thing? Yeah, but if you go into inner city LA, I mean, it's assumed. I mean, there are thousands of people right now living on the streets, homeless, getting pickpocketed, beaten every single day. It is such a normal part of life that they, trust me, they are not shocked. That doesn't mean they aren't hurt by it. That doesn't mean they aren't frustrated by it. But it's no longer shocking because it happened last week and then it happened two months ago and it happened a month before that. I mean, it's no longer shocking. Yeah. That kind of ties into entitlement too because yeah. I think if we feel like we can achieve a certain level, whatever that is, it's different for different people, then we are exempt from things being taken away. And I think that's a very human thing is to want to get to a place where even if this happens, even if this happens, I'll still be okay. And it's kind of like a false cushioning and that's where this is an idol because we're expecting our security to come from that instead of yes. from a God who needs to give us all things. Totally. I think it's a great comment. Um, whenever you were talking, Jordan, I was thinking about how success can be linked with identity and just uh, a question that's so popular here, which is who am I? And I think it's hard because um, as Christians, we want to draw our identity from God. But also, our identity comes in the things that we do, right? I mean, like, tangibly, um, our interests, what we're good at. Like, so I find it difficult, maybe you guys can help me with this, but I find it difficult, like, trying to make sure that um, that, that question doesn't um, go overload on the success part, like when you find out like what you're good at. Um, part of that does kind of describe you, it makes you unique, sets you apart from other people, but how you don't want to base your whole identity on whatever it is that you're successful on. So there's that like tension of like, yes, it's, it's great that God has given me these different gifts and that I'm successful with, but how I can't, you know, like, Tim Keller says, I can't make that an ultimate thing. But it's just that tension is hard, I think. It's hard to separate now. Yeah, I would like to maybe alter only one thing you said. I totally agree. It's, you said we draw our identity from God. I would say we're supposed to want to. Many of us don't. Like in practicality, we, and we, maybe this even ties into our series way back when the previous fall, which is uh, the church and society, where John talked about how a lot of times people say, well, I'm conservative first. I'm American next, and then I'm Christian. You know, I mean, like the problem is a lot of times it's like, yeah, I'm Christian, but it's been added to a different identity of, you know, I want to be successful in this. I'm I'm a businessman. Like I am a businessman, and yeah, I happen to be Christian. You know, so we should get our identity first and foremost from God. But I think in practicality, many Christians don't, um, and that's a problem. And and we'll talk to about that. I think that's great though because we begin to derive our identity from something else other than being a child of God. Yeah. I think that for, for me, that's where I'm coming full circle. So I struggled for a long time. Like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, does this title mean something? Does this somehow define me? But kind of coming full circle and, okay, so I am, I, I am who I am because of, of who I am in Christ and what he has done for me, right? And so really putting that at the forefront and then you know, taking it from there and really enjoying, okay, I can enjoy this, and I am really good at it, and I want to share this gift with others. And so I think, you know, like Heather said, it's, it's staying focused there and finding, okay, this is my purpose, this is my identity, 
and this is what he's given me to share him with others. And I think sometimes, too, just to add on to that, it's a temptation for us to go from putting our idolatry in success to putting it in self-deprecation, and we start looking badly on ourselves. We're like, oh, well, we can't like that we did something good. We can't like that God blessed us in that way. We just have to like God. But what does that look like? But I think that like there has to be some confidence driven from somewhere. Otherwise, you go around moping all the time, and that's... I just don't feel like that's what God wants for us to be like, oh, I hate myself. This is awful. You know, I can't wait till I die and go to heaven because then I can like myself. Like, we're supposed to like ourselves now, too. It just comes from a different place. Right, and we started with, remember, we are made to work. We are made to do things. We are made to produce fruit. It's part of, I mean, there are many Christians who, hey, I got the Jesus ticket to heaven, like you're saying, and then don't, th they think that's the Christian life. No, no, no. We are saved, like Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we are made in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared for us to do. So we are saved so that we would go and bless others. That's where that tension comes from because it's not just, hey, don't do anything or, or be totally afraid of ever doing something good or doing it well. No, that's not where we're supposed to live either. Ray, did you? I think it's a matter of reframing like when something is done good, is it the amount to which you were able to glorify God through doing that thing or is it something good that you did that has nothing to do with God. Like, if it's not in any way related to anything that could possibly have brought glory to God, then I think pride can definitely come in at that point. Like, if it's something that I did, like if I got straight A's in the semester, I might casually, and this is something I struggle with a lot, I might casually, like, thank God for my brain or whatever, but I did that, that was me. Like, God doesn't have anything to do with my grades. I did my grades by myself. So, like, God has no place in that. So that's where pride comes in, and that's where grades become an idol. So, like. If God has no part in the good thing that you're doing, I think that's where it becomes dangerous. Yeah, that's very honest. And I, yeah, it's something that I struggle with because this is something I'm, I've been working through in the last few months is, you know, there are some Christians where everything they say is God bless God, this God, 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 you know, and like to the point where it's like, I don't even believe that person because no, I think they've true. just been told how to do that, but I have, you and I sound like we have the problem, and I've talked about this with Chris and others, where we have the problem of always saying how I did this, and never saying God, and, and it can, I've noticed that I have a gut reaction when somebody says, oh, praise God, sometimes I'll have a gut reaction, and the issue is actually in my heart, like, why is that bothering me that somebody would say praise God for, let's say, getting an A on, on, a, on a paper or in a class, like, why would that bother me? And the reason is pride, because I think, well, didn't you just do that? Like, what, what the heck? You know, I mean, you know, like we say, oh, this is my brain. This is, this is my stuff. And yeah, God, it's cool that, you know, you helped me. I'm sure you made me focus better for an hour or something. You know, like, that's, yeah, I pray very similarly. Let's move on. Other questions? Do you feel any less value or worth if other people haven't complimented you or acknowledged something that you have done recently? This is one I have issues with. Because I like people looking at me, um, and it's one that in my marriage we talk about because, yeah, there are real issues where uh, my temptation is this. If I feel like my voice isn't being heard or somebody isn't looking this way, I will have the tendency to do things to make sure that people know I'm here, right? So that's my response, um, and I don't think it's good. I don't think it's right. Uh, there has to be some sense of identity and worth that understands truly, as, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, God sees what's done in secret. 
your father who is unseen sees everything that is done in secret. There's no need to, to throw the banner up to, to shoot things. Is there a level for healthy complimenting? Absolutely. I actually think it's humans, we do have need for praise, right? And even humble praise. Not, we're not talking like, you know, I need my head, ego always built up. No, I mean, recognizing that some people do things well. And it is a good thing to encourage people and just say, hey, I really saw you, you know, you really listened to me in a conversation like, Thank you for doing that. It really validated me, right? I don't think the other person should be so terrified of receiving a statement like that. But at the same time, if you do listen to somebody for an hour and a half and they don't praise you, are you all right? Is it okay that you know, yeah, I, I was willing to sacrifice time and, and I did something humbly and quietly and it's great that it stayed that way. There's no need for it to go any further. Did you have a question or is that you? I think something related to this is when you like measure success by comparing yourself to the success of others, or maybe even a better way to say it is when others are successful, if that makes you feel less successful or less good about yourself, then I usually use that as a guide to know that I have a struggle or there's an idol underneath whatever that is. Yeah, I, I totally affirm that. There's a couple of the questions coming up. so. Let's keep moving. So a current accomplishment, something you've done recently, not mean as much as it used to. Is there a diminishing euphoria or sense of accomplishment as you achieve more and more? So this is a real strong sign that something is wrong. So something that you could have done well before uh, is no longer enough um, to relate a, an athletic uh, example. I mean, if you look at anyone, you know, every sports has some level of stats that they keep. And every person, you know, as soon as they hit one benchmark, it's never just saying like, yeah, this is actually a very content season. Like, I, I excelled. If I did that again next year, I'd be happy. No, nobody says that. They say, I'm going to hit 10 more home runs. I'm going to, you know, score 20 more points a game or whatever it is. It is a very human tendency. So I think this happens in business. It happens in all areas of life. We hit one benchmark and we immediately say, okay, good. Now that we're here, we got to go 10 more. And if we don't, even worse, or even this question is actually, even if you hit that benchmark, you're getting less of a diminishing return. Like that is, should be a huge sign that something is wrong. As I'm gaining more wealth or, or whatever it is, it's not enough. Uh, I'm not even getting as much satisfaction as I used to when, when I was back there, so to speak. I think this one also relates to kind of a fear of failure, um, as opposed to not necessarily wanting success so much, but like you talk talk to coaches in sports, oftentimes they remember the losses infinitely more than the wins. And like you know, going through, I can remember looking back papers, things. I remember the stuff I failed down the line, and I don't want to feel that again. And even this, the stuff that's successful, I think about it, and it's not really I'm looking back in euphoria or anything. It's more in relief that I didn't fail. And that kind of reminds me of out of insecurity, right? An insecurity of failing. Okay, do you become jealous or envious when someone in your field of work achieves something great? Do you get angry at their success or can you honestly celebrate with them? This is John's point. Absolutely. If we have issues celebrating things, and this is where we get into the craziness when you think of ministry efforts and we're competing against other churches or, or uh, you know, annoyed that another church is growing or doing well, now we've really got something messed up, right? And that happens all the time, all the time. Also, I'm just wanting to point out the difficulty because uh, it can be really hard if somebody else, um, although they're doing something great, is getting a lot of attention for it. 
and you may be working your butt off too and be doing a lot of great things, but your work doesn't get acknowledged. And so um, you can feel like less worthy or less valuable or overlooked. And it's like you have to find your strength from God to say, no, I'm still doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and it's okay. You know, but I think that's hard. Yeah, and I, and I, I think it is hard, and I, don't, and I think that, that honesty is really important. So you find yourself like Jonathan, somebody did something great, my accomplishments aren't getting knowledge, I'm pissed or I'm angry or I'm envious, open up about that. Talk to someone, pray, you know, I mean, do something that, you know, acknowledges, yep, I'm in the midst of something here. That's exactly why Jesus says you take on the posture of a servant. Um, it's because precisely at that moment when you're feeling like I should be the one being fed or taken care of or that's what I deserve, you set all that down. Whether you deserved it or not, he did, we don't. And then you take on the posture of a servant. So when you're in that situation and you see that going on and somebody else is getting accolades and you're working even harder and you're not, you're tempted to feel weird or feel strange. And he would say even in that circumstance, Put that aside and be a serving even more. And don't look for that at all. And that's the place that's so hard for us. Because we hear the word of God. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, he really means that. Megan, did you have something? Yeah, I was say, I have such a hard time with this. And it's so awful. Like, I, I work with my boyfriend, right? So, like, presumably, like, one of my best friends. I love him. But still, like, I can get praised two minutes before. But it's, like, still that that gut reaction, like, when it's not me. And it's my boyfriend. Like, it's it's. But so, I don't know, I'll have to ask people later about how they overcome this because it's been just so deep-seated with me for a long time and it's obviously not honoring God like at all. It's so hard to shake. Yeah, it's great. A couple others. Do you name drop or desire to be around other successful people at the expense of others or close friends? Right. And name drop in your field. Everyone's got their field, got their thing, their famous people, whoever they look up to. Do you have to be the best at your field or area of influence? And he, Keller says this one is probably the, the big one. Like if, if you're saying yes to this or you're even tempted to say yes to this, really investigate this because that's the comparison thing we're talking about. Do you have to be the best? And how would you even categorize best anyways? Because Jesus categorizes it as the one who goes last. So if, you, if it's economics, it's not the person who makes the most money. That's not the kingdom value, right? So, I mean, the problem is our system, and this is the way of the world, so it shouldn't surprise us uh, that, that many of us are tempted, myself included, to say, I want to be the best pastor. I wanna, wh why isn't being a really quality pastor good enough? Well, wh what the heck is wrong with that? Nothing is the answer, but, but I think it is, you know, and so whatever your field is, if you're saying yes to this, that's, that's a clue in to say, all right, I, I think you need to do some time with the Lord here. Yeah. Well, I don't know, maybe I'm just like mixing words in my head, but I think that word best, it, you have to kind of be careful with that one because I, for me, I want to be the best in my profession, but the best that I can be so that I can better serve my patients. So. Yes, and that's very good because the effort is on our side of am I using my talents to the best of my ability? But that assumes you're not looking at anybody else. You're not saying the best is, be it's just, am I putting motivation and effort? Am I being a good steward? I would agree. I think there's nothing wrong with saying, did I really, whatever your task is, whatever your day of work, did I really put in an effort here? Did I do my part? God has given me this. Did I steward it well today? 
Um, th that I think is a fair and good question. Uh, I, don't, I don't sense idolatry in, in that. The problem is though, usually when we say best, we mean, I mean, I want to be a better physical therapist than that one over there. Or I want my company to be better than that one down there. You know I mean? Yeah, it's, it, that's, that's where we've got it really messed up. Yeah, so that brings us to me, which is I feel like mine is not like that. I'm going to graduate in a year. And sitting at Abby's graduation yesterday, I was like, they better say magna cum laude after my name. Like, I want that. Like, it was so, like, like a violent reaction towards, like, I need to have that. I need to have those words after my name. I need to graduate the top of my class and the hardest major at AP. Like, I need, I need that. And I don't know how to get, like, I don't know how to try less hard in school to get less Go. good grades to not get those words. Like, I don't know how to stop reaching for that because everything that I've ever been taught is, no, 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 it's good. It's good to be the best, especially in school, especially in education. Like, that's a place where it's okay to be. Like, how, how do I even begin to not need that so much? Yeah, and it's so funny. I was just telling this story this past week with Carissa where because I was a great hawk too, and I still there, there's part of me in that where, yeah, there's there's some similarities. But like for my undergrad, I had the star or whatever on cum laude or whatever it was. But I actually in the last quarter I lost it by point zero zero six. So my official and it, but there's still part of me goes, oh yeah, but I took two pass no pass classes that I got A's in, and they're pass no pass. So really, I, I deserve that. Even though if it, and I still, I still have to justify it. Like there's still, like why do I even have that conversation? Why does that even bother me? Why would that matter? Yeah. Um, I don't think it's about trying less. It's about committing your work to the Lord. And I don't know what verse it is, but uh, it says everything you do, do as if you're working towards the Lord. So two people can have the same level of success, like cum laude or whatever. But one person can have, could have gone about it in a very ungodly manner. But one person could have been committing their homework every night to God and be like, God, help me do well in this. I want to do this for you. And that makes a huge difference with your attitude when you achieve the same success that an ungodly person might have as well. Well, and we're certainly at the level of motivation and intentions. Some of the hard stuff, though, is, is weeding it out or actually figuring out what's the truth in my heart. Because that, and that's why hopefully some of these questions are helpful because sometimes we think Again, it's not an easy thing. I mean, these aren't bad things. We have looked at idols. These ones are good. I mean, love especially is a great thing. Love for God, though, needs to be primary. Success is a good thing. God wants us to be a good steward. But if we have this unrelenting identity-finding issue, now we've, we've, we've messed the whole thing up. So that's, that is the tension, is, is why am I still here in some way justifying, like, Hey, I missed the honors roll by 0 .006. It doesn't matter. It's really, my identity is not based upon that. And I don't like lose sleep over this. So it's not a big thing. But it's just, it, to me, it's even interesting that years apart, I still think about this and how well I kind of deserve that anyway. So, yeah. For me, sometimes it's really hard to get through my head that like, if I tried hard and I was summa cum laude, or if I tried hard and I got Bs, that God, in either scenario, would still, you know, Loving the same, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know if that is hard for anyone else because it's, I think you hit, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> close to home. Right, and we have to also remember all these things are things that could be taken away from us. 
So there's nothing wrong with saying, good, I have my mental fa faculties that are fully intact. God has given me this. But the reality is, what if I step out and get into a car accident and my mental faculties aren't there anymore? And if I went in class and I couldn't possibly get an A anymore because I don't think the same way. Would I be okay being me and not having that issue and loving God and, and saying I still have the same value and worth? That's hard. And that's the danger of these outward things. This final claim is good. Do you or your field make messianic claims? If you think you can save the world, if science can save the world, if this or that can save everything, that's a problem. And I even, I, I think the way it translates to mission or, or to Christian work is, you know, churches say, if our church, you know, we're going to be fine. The church is God, seems to be primary vehicle for healing the world. But it's in Christ and it's only by his leadership. So it's not my church can, can change the whole world. That's, that's the wrong question for ministry stuff. But every place that makes a messianic claim has way oversold their abilities. And there's that sense of false security. There's all kinds of foolish things in there. So success is another surface level idol. The bigger issue could be greed, could be fame, could be envy, could be security, could be pride, as Jordan said, could be control, could be selfishness. Those are all deeper areas to investigate as well. Why do you need such success? Why do you need to be the best? What, what's really going on there? And so we probably need to tease some of those out if you're saying yes to a lot of these questions. Is, is what, maybe what's underneath this? What's going on further? I want to show you a biblical example that I thought was good and then how that can be redeemed and how this man was redeemed. This is Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And this is from Keller's book. This is his example, so I'm just explaining it. So again, you have a very powerful man. His master gave him great worth and value. Other people looked up to him. He had power over other soldiers, but he had leprosy which is a big problem. He had leprosy. It says, Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now this is quite peculiar, isn't it? A slave girl from the nation that has been subjugated forcefully has it in her heart to actually say, Oh, this man can actually be saved. This shows great humility and love. There's no sense of vengeance, right? I mean, this girl conceivably is, is young, 12 to 15-ish. Her parents may have been killed in this effort, and yet she seeks the good of this person. This is quite intriguing. So hearing this news, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel said, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Again, this is the way of the world. I am a powerful person. I go to the king. I have rapport with him. He gives me a letter. He gives me lots of money. We go over. This is, and you go to the top person. I will go over to this country. I will talk to the king because this is who has power. Uh, it was also common in the ancient Near East that those in power, it was seen that they were blessed by God, so they must be closest to God, right? So as soon as the king of Israel reads the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? 
Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? The king of Israel knows that the God of Israel doesn't act the way that the other quote-unquote gods are supposed to act. You can't buy this God off. You can't do those things. It doesn't work that way. So he gets worried for his life because this might even cause a quarrel if he shames this man and just sends him empty-handed, right? That would bring shame upon his kingship or upon Israel or, or something of that nature. However, the servant girl, remember, only to go to the prophet. You don't need to do that. You don't have to go the top-down way. So Elisha hears him. It says, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him the message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and the, the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman is shamed by this. Elisha didn't even talk to him. He sent servants. Didn't even talk to him. And aren't the rivers better in the Damascus? So he is totally wondering, like, what is going on here? This is not how successful people interact. This is not how powerful people interact. Naaman's servants, however, went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, dipped himself in the door in seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Naaman's heart begins to become changed. And all three of the powerful people are all servants. The servant girl in Israel, the servants of Elisha told him what to do, and his own servants remind, like, hey, if he would have done some crazy thing, like, wouldn't you have, you know, received that? So why won't you receive something simple? So Naaman is quite humbled through this. But he still hasn't fully changed. Uh, do you have the scripture for the last two verses, 15 to 16, Jordan? And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman recognizes that God can do amazing things, even dipping in a water in a, in a river that isn't all that great in his eyes. And yet, he still wants to give him a gift, and Elisha refuses, and even at the prodding. So he still seems to have the remnants of, okay, I've got to, I've got to earn this. I've got to do something for it. It's not enough just to receive that. It's still that, hey, if I receive something, I have to give back. I have to show some level of power. And instead, God humbles him through this. So you can see a very, it's a powerful story. Um, I've never heard this story in the light of, the idol of power or success. I thought this was a good example, a very intriguing example of how there's an, there was an undergirding assumption in his interactions. And I think it's very similar to us. This is what you do. Uh, you try to rub shoulders with the best in your field so that you can get ahead of others. Uh, you make sure if you're hosting somebody, you're going to uh, you know, do the things that appeal to the outwardly instead of the inwardly. And so it's very powerful. How do we become redeemed? How do we move out of success? I think we've been hinting at some of these. And it is central to identity. Carissa pointed that out. Where do we get our primary identity? 
Jesus, as soon as Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And I really believe that this was a fundamental uh, event in Jesus' life because he received or he understood his sonship in a deeper way. Uh, the next event in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is then led by the Spirit out to be tempted. And the devil tempts him every time about, if you are the Son of God, do such and such. Turn these stones into bread. Like he's questioning his identity. And I really believe that part of Jesus' strength in that temptation after fasting was hearing this voice, really hearing it. So to the point where he wasn't thwarted, I, don't, I do not have to prove my sonship to you. I've heard the Father's voice. I've internalized it. I know that I am loved with him. You know, I'm, he is well pleased with me, and I will carry out my mission. I won't be thwarted by you questioning my identity. First John, we've read this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. So that same voice that Jesus experienced is one that we should experience. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he, Jesus, is pure. I think one of the ways we get out of success is deeply internalizing, not just knowing it in our head. I mean, everyone in this room here has been a Christian for a good while, uh, knows that, okay, God loves me, God loves me. But the disconnect is actually believing it, actually really knowing that you are a son or a daughter of God, that in Christ, the Father is well pleased with you. That there's no, there's no need for external accomplishments to validate or to receive God's love. We do have to reject the voices of the world that don't operate on that. That is part of the hardship because most of the, the world doesn't care about that voice from heaven. They, don't, they, don't, they aren't mindful of it. That's not enough. So I hope there's some hope in that. And in two weeks, we'll be, getting, we'll, we'll be digging deeper. How do you actually get out of various idols? Uh, one of the articles that was good, um, he said specific, specifically for success, serve in secrecy. Wash, clean a toilet. <laughs> do things that nobody wants to do. Keep it quiet. Don't point to yourself. Remember Jesus' way of taking the last seat. Find something quiet where you can serve others. Put others before you where there's no success involved. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, and we thank you that you are well pleased with us because of your son, Jesus. Uh, we confess, uh, and I know we need to talk more, and we need to pray with you more, and we need to work it out with you. Uh, God, so often we look to external things uh, to validate ourselves, to get ahead of others. We compare. Lord, forgive us. Uh, God, I pray that we would even remember Isaiah, uh, who before you just cried out and said, I am an unclean man with unclean lips. Uh, before the living God. That is the only comparison. And with that, we would be utterly humbled always. So, Father, I pray that you give us the strength to look up to you, um, to worship you, to...
fall down and acknowledge that before you we, we have nothing to offer. Uh, God, we thank you for your gracious love. We thank you that you receive us uh, and that you desire us and that you give us good work to do. I thank you and I pray that we would be passionate people, that we would steward our talents well. Uh, so Lord, guide us. pray this in your name. Amen.